All right, you guys have a seat. Have a seat. Hey, I am so excited. Uh, I'm so excited to be here this morning. My name is Austin, and I, I have come from East Lansing, uh, the Commons Church. You guys need to know our church loves you guys like crazy. Uh, we have been praying for you guys since before you guys were born as a church. You know, when we planted in East Lansing, uh, we went there for a few reasons, but really probably the biggest reason we chose East Lansing was within an hour and a half radius of our city, if you drive actually pretty fast, there's 12 other universities that we want to see churches planted at. And so when we heard that, uh, that David was uh, wanting to come plant in Ann Arbor, we were like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. Like first one off the map. And, uh, and so just know, we love you guys. We are behind you guys. It is incredible to see what God is doing here. Like, I mean, the fact that we're six months in-ish here and this is what's happening is nuts. Like, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with church planting and like what it takes to get a church started. But like, if you had a, a national picture of how church planting normally goes and you saw what God was doing here in light of that, you would, you'd, you'd fall out. I mean, it's absolutely nuts what God's doing here. Uh, and so I'm pumped. This is like incredible. Okay, so I'm giddy. I'm gonna get over that. Also, uh, they're right. Uh, like uh, the, these guys I brought with me, one of them's got my phone. Uh, if my wife texts, it's because she's going into labor. This will be number four for us. And our, uh, our last two came really fast. In fact, one of them uh, was, was born way early and we almost didn't make it to the hospital. It was one of these drive up uh, and park in the front doors. Uh, it just turned the car off, took the keys, they're like, you can't park there. I'm like, well, tow it because uh, this girl's about to have a baby. And uh, I'm glad we didn't try to find a place to park because we would have had the baby in the car or in the parking lot, one of the two. So basically, if she goes into labor while I'm here, I'm going to miss the delivery, but I'll get there soon after. So uh, anyways, all right, we are in Matthew chapter seven, and I can't believe I'm going to do this. I'm going to get griped out for this later by David, I'm sure. But I'm going to start by telling you a story of when I was in a fraternity in college. Um, don't judge me. It was not one of those like bougie, you know, fraternities wearing the Sperry's and the fishing shirts and the glasses around the neck, you know, and the seaside hats, not that. Uh, it, was, it was actually worse than that. I, we were like the, the ragtag fraternity, had no money. Uh, the reputation was like total party, you know, drugs, alcohol, sex, all that stuff. Now, kind of a little backstory on getting into this fraternity. I hated fraternities, didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, but my roommate's sophomore year of college was like, dude, let's rush. And I was like, I'm not gonna rush, that's stupid. And he goes, free food. And I was like, you had me at free food, I'm in. And so we start to go through rush and the whole way through, I'm still like anti-frat and we kept getting invited back to this one fraternity. And uh, it was the last kind of play or rush party. And I, going into the party, I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm just here again for the free food. But something happened in my heart through that party. Uh, I, I really believe like God impressed on my heart, not some audible voice, nothing like that. But like he impressed on my heart. This is, I want you to, I want you to join this frat. This is gonna be your ministry for the next few years. And so uh, if they give you a bid, join it. So I, I joined the fraternity. And um, so it was incredible to, I mean, there's a lot of things I could say, but one story I want to tell you is there's a guy that I met in the fraternity. His name uh, is Chance. And, uh, and Chance, I, I started to get to know him a few months into being part of this fraternity. He comes to me one day. I remember this, we were in the dorm. He catches me in the dorm and he says, he says, Wadlow, that's my last name, Wadlow. Uh, he goes, I need your help. Like, help with what? And he goes, I got a pot smoking problem. I need you to help you stop smoking pot. And uh, which I know, all right, we're in Michigan. So, you know, that's a different story now. But anyways, uh, I, I was like, uh, I can't help you stop smoking. Like, how, how am I gonna help you stop smoking pot? And he goes, well, I have this idea. I was like, what's your idea? And he said, um, if you catch me smoking pot, I want you to punch me in the face as hard as you can. 
I was like, Chance, that's a terrible idea. Like, that's dumb. And he goes, no, seriously, I want you to do this because I need to feel the consequences of my decisions. And I really want to get over this habit of smoking pot. And I was like, dude, I'm not going to do that. He's like, please do it. And I was like, all right, let's do it. And he goes, shake on it. We shake on it. And, uh, and so that was the deal. If I catch him smoking pot, I'm punching him in the face and I'm a man of my word. And so uh, a few weeks later, we're at this, uh, this party. It was a mixer with another sorority out in the woods. I went to school in Arkansas. So, you know, my education is like really sketch, but uh, this party was out in the woods, which was also really sketch. Uh, and the property we were on had like this five acre pond and uh, mixer with this other sorority. You know, we're probably like 30 minutes, hour into this. I'd usually show up for the first part of the party and then leave before things got weird and crazy. And so this first part of the party, and I'm looking around for a chance. I was like, where'd Chance go? And I'm looking for him, uh, asking a couple of my buddies, where's, hey, where's Chance at? And finally, this guy who knew the deal we had, kind of, as I asked him, he kind of looks out of his corner of his eye out to the, to the lake or the pond. And I look out there, it's pitch black, it's super dark. I don't see anything. And, he, and I'm like, why are you doing that weird thing with your eyes? And he goes, he's out there on the pond. And I was like, I don't see anything. He said, well, look closer. And I look out there. And he and this other guy, who's actually now in prison, but this other guy, they uh, went out on this paddle boat. Uh, and you, if you looked really close, every once in a while, you see this little light kind of light up and then disappear and light up and disappear. They were out on this paddle boat smoking pot. And so uh, I was like, all right, well, I, I guess I caught him smoking pot and I need to go punch him in the face. And so I waited for them to paddle back in and I go wait on the dock and, and uh, he sees me, you know, as he's paddling up and his eyes are real big uh, for a couple reasons. But um, uh, he gets up off, off the boat onto the dock and he's like, all right, you know, I'm ready. And he kind of turns his head like that. And I'm like, Chance, dude, I'm not going to punch you in the face. And he's like, oh, thank God. I didn't want you to punch me in the face. And I'm like, but dude, I mean, you know, why do you keep doing this? You know, you say you want to stop. Why do you keep doing this? And this was the beginning of an interesting thing with Chance. Like he started to feel, he was not a believer, but he started to feel conviction over his sin. It was the weirdest thing. And I, I didn't understand how God worked like at this point, but it was pretty obvious to me as a sophomore in college that God was working in Chance's heart because he started to feel conviction over uh, smoking pot. And pretty quick after that, he starts to feel conviction over getting drunk all the time. And, and then pretty soon after that, he starts to feel conviction of sleeping with his girlfriend. And, and he kept coming to me with this stuff of like, man, I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And, uh, and so uh, fast forward uh, a few more months and I was showering one night and uh, actually praying for Chance, weird, I know, but I was praying for him in the shower. And Chance loved to fish. And I, I don't know if this was like God, again, impressing this on my heart or just me coming up with this idea, but I'm in the shower and I'm thinking, man, when I get out of the shower, I need to call Chance, uh, ask him to take me to Walmart to get a fishing pole because I've never really been a fisher guy. I grew up in the city. Uh, and, and take me to Walmart, get, get, help me get a fishing pole, pick out a fishing pole. And then Chance, I want you to teach me how to fish. And in my mind, I was thinking, he loves to fish. He does it all the time. This will be my way of getting time with Chance so we can talk. And hopefully I can start really like sharing the gospel with this guy. And so I get out of the shower. I call Chance. He's super pumped. We go to Walmart that night and uh, get a fishing pole. Next day, we're fishing. And so we start, uh, we start fishing together regularly, like two, three times a week even. Arkansas, you can fish everywhere. And, uh, and, and these times we go fishing, we're having conversation, getting to know each other, but it's like intentional. I'm trying to get there with him. I'm trying to go deeper with him and sharing the gospel. It got to a point where like I'm praying, God, I'm about to go hang out with Chance. I just pray the moment that I hop in his truck, he's got questions. And that's what would happen. We'd get in the truck and he'd be like, hey, Wadlaw, I was thinking about this. And I'd be like, no way, that's crazy. I, secretly, I'm like, I was just praying that, you know, you were thinking about this. And, and so we'd spend our two hours together just talking about Jesus. And this went on for six months. So we started fishing 
in October. Now we get to March, six months later, which by the way, Arkansas weather's different than Ann Arbor weather. So like March, it's like, you know, spring and sunny outside. And here it's what it is today. Um, but we're fishing in March, six months. And I mean, literally two, three times a week, we're fishing, having gospel conversations. And it got to a point where I'm like, Chance, you understand the gospel. Chance, <clears throat> you understand how, how you are a sinner. Like, you, you know these truths. And he was leaning in, wanting to talk about it. It's like, it was so obvious he wanted it, but he was yet to just like cross the line. And so I remember asking him one day while we're fishing, Chance, what is keeping you from crossing the line and just placing your faith in Jesus, trusting him with your life? And he kept saying, I don't know. I just don't know what it is. And so we're driving home, March, nighttime now. And I said, Chance, here's the deal. I think tonight's the night. You got to make a decision. You're either in or you're out. And so I said, I'm a little confrontational. Probably shouldn't have taken this approach. But I was like, dude, you need to go to your room right now, your dorm room right now. And, and I don't want you to come out until you've decided. And it's like, this is for the rest of your life. You're either in with Jesus or you're out. But like tonight's the night you're making a decision. And I said, I'm going to come down to your room in 20 minutes. I want you to decide in 20 minutes. So we get back to the dorm. I go to my room. He goes to his. And I'm sitting there in my room. I'm like, God, I'm, I just, would you save chance? And I'm watching the clock. 10 minutes in, all right, so not 20 minutes, 10 minutes in, I get a call from Chance and he's like weeping. And he's like, Wadley, you gotta get down here. All right, so I go down there. He's sitting on the floor with this Bible that somebody had given him months before. He's got his Bible open, Matthew chapter seven. And there was a note. And the thing is, this Bible had given to him, been given to him months before by this girl named Lindsay. And she had written him a note and shoved it uh, in between Matthew seven and eight. And in the note, it said, hey, Chance, I hope that you'll read Matthew 7, verses 7 through 8, which, by the way, say, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Uh, knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then she wrote this note and just said, Chance, I'm praying that you would come to know Jesus. And she said, Chance, like, as, if you get to this point where in your heart, you begin to see how much you need Jesus. You need to know the truth of what is said here in Matthew 7. If you ask, you will get an answer. If you will find, if you knock, he will open the door to you. He wants you. He wants to save you. And he's sitting there weeping. He's like, dude, this is exactly where I'm at. I read this and it's like, God's word just explained where my heart's been these past few months and where it is tonight. And in that moment, Chance prayed to receive Christ. He came, he came to faith. Now, I'm sharing this story because this is the passage we're studying this morning, Matthew 7. And I love this passage because this is the passage that God used to save my friend Chance. Uh, but it's also this passage that I think is so critical to us because it teaches us something really important about ourselves and it teaches us something really important about God. So, so Matthew chapter 7, that's where we're at. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 7. We're going to read through verse 11. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, it says this. Ask, this is Jesus talking. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who, man, that is really small on the screen. Holy smokes. Y'all, can y'all read that? Can y'all read that? Okay, all right. Ann Arbor people, U of M, y'all got superior eyesight and you think you got superior everything else too. So, you know, whatever. All right. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or he kind of switches his, Stuff here. He's still in the same conversation, but he's, he's, he's kind of switching. He's going to tell a story now, a little parable. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So look at verses seven and eight again. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. So there's three promises that we get here. And we're gonna unpack that here in a second. But before we go there, I just want you to see uh, the progression in intensity. It, It goes from ask to seek to knock. First he says, ask. I mean, think about that. Asking is one thing. Like asking, it is very stationary. Like I can stand here on the stage or I can sit here on the edge of the stage and I can ask you something. It's kind of passive because you ask and then you wait. But then he says, seek. Now seek, it's like, it's like taking it to another level. Seeking, it, it involves movement. No longer are you just waiting for it to come to you. You are now going to find it. So he says, ask. Then he says, seek. Then he says, knock. And knocking, okay, now the level of intensity is up to like an even more intense notch now. Like having found what you were seeking, you now have this level of impatience and you are standing there knocking or even banging until you get what you want, until the doors open to you. With each progression, the impatience, the intensity, the desperation, it increases. It increases. You know what this makes me think of? It makes me think of middle school. So like middle school, um, first of all, middle school, like how many of you would say like middle school was like you thrived in middle school? That was a good time for you. Uh, how, many, how many didn't like, how many, it was like the opposite. No, middle school, I'd kind of like to forget about those years. You know, I love this because, which nobody raised their hands to the first question, um, which is good because what I'm about to say, anybody who raises their hands to the first question of like, oh yeah, I thrived in middle school. That's because you peaked in middle school. And uh, your life is probably not great now. Uh, But everybody who raised their hands to the second question, your life has gotten a lot better since. So anyways, it's true. You know, it's true. Well, in middle school, there's like two groups of people in the school, right? There's like the cool people, the not cool people. It's very distinct. Typically, the cool people are like the athletes um, and then the people that hang around the athletes. And then there's like everybody else, you know, like marching band and stuff. Um, And uh, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. Uh, but kind of serious. So I played sports in middle school, so I had access to the cool people, but I was not cool. All my friends were like people in the band and like people not in the cool group. And uh, in, our, in our school, and this is, I feel like true in every middle school, there's like, there's like, you know, a couple of people, a couple of girls that everybody's just crushing on. There were two girls in middle school that our whole middle school was crushing on. The girls' names uh, were, I think still are, I think they're alive, Jessica and uh, Nicole. So uh, everybody was like crushing on Jessica and Nicole. And one of my good friends, uh, his name's Ben. And he was definitely not part of the cool group. Uh, he was kind of on the lower end of the spectrum of, you know, the case system in middle school. And uh, Ben, uh, he had a huge, huge crush on uh, Nicole. But he didn't really have the self-awareness to know that he had like no shot with her. Uh, and this crush took over his life. And it got to a point one day in our science class uh, where it, it kind of, it hit this crescendo moment, or I don't know if crescendo is the right word, uh, but so I, I want you to kind of picture the classroom. There's four rows of desks. Um, I sat in the fourth row in the back corner. So like over here, that's the other back corner over there. And then there was, I don't know why it was set up like this, but there was two desks on the fifth row, one in each corner. Um, the desk behind me, that's where Nicole sat in the very back, right behind me. And then the desk in the opposite corner, that's where Ben sat. And on this particular day, before class started, Ben came in early 
and he put a rose on Nicole's desk with a note asking her out. Uh, and it happened to be a science teacher uh, just let us watch a movie, um, which were always good days. You know, science teacher, I guess, like, I don't want to teach today. So, you know, here's a movie we're going to watch. And so we're watching this movie. And Nicole comes in and immediately sees the rose and the note turns, you know, red in her face. She's embarrassed. She sees where the note's from. And, and Ben's sitting, you know, the other side over there. And in the movie... Here's what you begin to hear. So I'm now, I'm now Ben. I'm sitting in this desk. And there are those desks that the chair and the, the desk are connected to each other. You know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden in the movie, you hear this squeak. And, and like, you kind of heard it. You're like, did I hear a squeak? You know? uh, then you hear it squeak like that. And it got to the point, it's okay, it's coming from the back of the room, but uh, you turn and look, didn't really notice what was happening. Then you hear this squeak. And then at that point, you look back and you see, oh my gosh, this dude is moving his desk over towards Nicole's desk. Uh, you know, and eventually, he like butts it up next to her desk. And now he's like sitting right next to her. And she's just like, you know, head in her hand, so embarrassed. And he proceeds in the middle of this movie in science class to try to ask Nicole out. I mean, it was pathetic. Like, I mean, total desperation. Like in that moment, the dude lost his dignity. Now here, here's, here's like to Ben's credit, I think a lot of us have kind of been in that state before, probably in middle school. You like lose it all over this crush. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't think straight, you know. You, you, you don't think straight. You get impatient. This is how you are. I'm, when I, honestly, when I first met my now wife, uh, I was 31 at the time uh, when we met, or 30 at the time when we met. I mean, it was, I was crushing her. It took over my life. It was hard to think straight. Like, we get impatient. We get desperate. We stop thinking straight. This is the picture that we're seeing here. Ask progresses to seek, progresses to knock. That's the picture. It's a progression in intensity. It's a progression in desperation. Now, to understand what's happening here and what Jesus is getting at here, you've got to understand the context in which Matthew 7, 7 and 8 falls. So you got to see what's happening before. The Sermon on the Mount, this is what this falls part of, this is what you guys have been studying. The Sermon on the Mount, it's not simply Jesus teaching us to be good moral people. He, he's showing us the level of righteousness that God requires of us. Like, I'm sure you've caught this at this point. But he's not just teaching us to be good, moral, righteous people. He's, he's trying to show us, no, this is the level, the extreme level of righteousness that God requires of us. In fact, you go back to Matthew 5, verse 20. This is like the key moment in the sermon where he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into heaven. Now, we may not feel the weight of that statement because we don't really understand the scribes and Pharisees, but they felt it immediately because the scribes and the Pharisees, like if there was anybody in their culture who was like morally good or even like morally great, it was the Pharisees. It was the scribes. I mean, you, you throw them in this room, they're gonna be at the top of the ladder when it comes to like just, hey, they're, they're like morally good people. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you can't go to heaven. So immediately these people are thinking, well, shoot, nobody's righteousness can, can exceed that. That's crazy what you're saying. So then, right after saying that, he goes on, he starts like listing all this stuff. Verse 21, chapter five, he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be, will be liable to the hell of fire. He's saying, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, actually, the heart behind that command is if you harbor anger or hatred in your heart, 
You're a murderer in your heart. Then he goes on, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, actually the heart behind that, it's even more intense. Even when you just look lustfully at a woman or lustfully at a man, you're committing adultery with them in your heart. You're an adulterer. He talks about divorce. He talks about retaliation. He talks about prayer and fasting and giving and materialism and anxiety. And then he talks about judging. The point of the sermon is he's trying to show us the level of righteousness that God requires of us. Now let's just pause right here for a second and ask this question. Like looking at that list, how are we doing with all that stuff? Like if we were, like if we were to poll ourselves or poll this room on any of these, how would we do? Like, let's just start with lust. Oh, great. Here he goes. Let's start with, like, how are you doing in the lust category? Now, some of you who are married, you're like, well, I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not cheating on my husband. I'm good. Well, did you hear what he said, though? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, even if you look lustfully at another woman or another man, you're committing adultery with them in your heart. So like, if you're looking at pornography, well, you're not doing so good. And some of you in the room, as I say that, you're like, well, I'm not looking at porn. I'm doing good. Yeah, but if you're like, in your mind, addressing the girl who's, who's on the treadmill in front of you at the gym, hey, you're not doing good. How are we doing with that one? I mean, college students, some of you, you've forgotten that God designed sexual intimacy to be enjoyed inside the marriage covenant. Like, how are you doing in the lust category? How are you doing in the anger category? Remember, he says, uh, he says, according to Jesus, if you hate someone in your heart, it's just as bad as murder. I mean, by that standard, some of you like murdered your roommate like five times already this week. You're not doing good. What about, what about anxiety? Oh my gosh, last week you guys talked about anxiety. About anxiety. I mean, Jesus says, don't be anxious. That's what the Gentiles do. That's what the people who don't know God do you don't trust God. I mean, if the stats that are true out there are true in here, we're probably not doing super well in the anxiety category. What about giving? What about materialism? It says, it says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What, what does where your treasure is say about where your heart is? And, and so context, understand, ask, seek, knock, what's going on there. We got to understand the context. Context isn't just what comes before, it's what comes after too. So you keep reading verse 12, chapter 7. This is what comes after all this. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. How are we doing with that? Probably not good. And then he goes on, he says, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Y'all are about to teach through this. I don't want to step on that sermon, but here's, here's in short, what he's saying here is, Look, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, but your life looks no different than people who are not following Jesus, you're probably not following Jesus. You're on the wide road, which is headed straight to hell. How are we doing? <laughs> Have you, seven, chapter seven, verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but, this, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Like how many people he's saying there's gonna be who are in rooms like this, singing these songs, knowing the things to say, knowing how to act and dress, and yet they still don't know Jesus. Like this is the context of all of this. How are we feeling about all of this? The point of the Sermon on the Mount is for us to see the level of righteousness that God requires of us. 
Now, we throw around this word all the time in the church called the gospel. The gospel. The gospel, it's an old English word, literally God spell, which meant good news or good story. And this is the word that we use to refer to the fact that God sent Jesus to save us from our sins. So the gospel, it's only good news to you if you first understand the bad news. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's it's about us understanding the bad news. There's no way in the world that any of us come even remotely close to living up to the level of righteousness that God requires. And, And you gotta got to see this. Don't miss this. This is not insignificant. Many in the crowd that day when Jesus preached this sermon, they were very religious, super religious. They were convinced that they could prove their worth to God by living a life uh, where their righteous deeds would outweigh and outshine their sinful deeds. And and here's, here's what I want you to see. Like some of you in this room, you think the same way. You think that you can prove your worth to God by living a good enough life where your, where your righteous deeds outweigh or outmeasure or outnumber your, sin, your sinful deeds. And I'll tell you this, if you don't think that way, I guarantee you your, your friends, your them think that way, your roommates, your classmates, your coworkers, your neighbors, the vast majority of them, they are convinced that they can prove their worth to God by their performance, their righteous deeds, their good deeds, their good days outnumbering they're bad ones. Again, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is for us to see the level of righteousness that God requires. No way that any of us come even remotely close living up to the level of righteousness that God requires. So I don't know how you feel while reading the Sermon on the Mount. I'll tell you how I feel. I read this and I think, well, shoot, I got no shot. <laughs> I mean, according to what Jesus says about anger, the first thing he kind of points out I don't have to read any further than that because, I mean, if, if anger in my heart is murder, I've probably murdered at least two or three of my family members this week, maybe twice. I don't have to read about lust. I don't have to read about the next ones, even though if I keep reading, it's gonna look even more bleak. Here's my point. The more clearly we see the level of righteousness God's law requires of us, the more desperate we'll be for God. It brings us our knees in desperation. Ask, seek, knock. I mean, envision the the posture of each of those. Ask, seek, knock. That is a picture of somebody getting a clearer and clearer understanding of their sin. Ask, seek, knock. That's a picture of a desperate person. That's a person pathetically pursuing what they feel so deeply in their hearts that they need. And this is how our relationship with God starts. We come to a place of such desperation, a place where we know we don't have what we need. We'll do whatever we've got to do to get it. And this is why I love this passage so much. By the way, this is why I love Chance's story so much. That night in Chance's dorm room, when he opened that Bible that he'd been given and he found the note shoved between Matthew 7 and 8, and he read this passage. Listen, God showed him exactly what was going on in his heart. Months before when he told me to punch him in the face if I caught him smoking pot, like that's when he started to feel the conviction of sin. That's when he started asking. He started feeling conviction over, over, over getting drunk, conviction over sleeping around. Like that's when he started asking. Then we start fishing together. That's when he starts to seek. We're having these deeper questions about the gospel. And then that night he found himself on his knees knocking. 
But here's where it gets good. Okay, so look at the promises in verses seven and eight. So he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And then verse eight, for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. He says, Jesus says, everyone who asks will receive. And everyone who seeks will find, it's a promise. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Do you realize what this is saying? It's saying everyone who comes to the father will be received. Nobody will be rejected. It sounds very similar to what Paul says in Romans 10, 13. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How can this be true? I mean, how is that possible, especially in light of Matthew 520, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you cannot enter into heaven. Listen, none of us, none of us, not a single one of us, not me, not you, come even close to measuring up to anything Jesus says in this sermon. So how is it that nobody who comes to God out of desperation, asking, seeking, knocking will be rejected? How is that true? Well, that's where verses nine through 11 come into play. So verse nine, he goes on, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So um, this same account or the same part of this sermon is also recorded in Luke chapter 11. And I want, you to, I want you to read how Luke records it. So Luke chapter 11, starting verse nine says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then he goes into the same story again. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I love this. Jesus is using this like rhetorical question in parable to make a really powerful point. He's saying, all right, like I imagine this crowd he's talking to, there's a lot of moms and dads. And he says, all right, let me talk to the dads for a second. I got four kids. Well, I mean, almost a fourth. We're gonna have four, four and under. Our house is crazy. We're adrenaline junkies, gluttons for punishment, never sleep. Anyways, uh, you know, if my, if my kids come to me and ask for something, like if my son came to me and said, hey, daddy, can I have a fish? Which I, he would never say fish, you know? He does say, hey, daddy, can I have a, can I have a bar? Uh, it's like, you know, a snack, um, which I do tell him no on the bar all the time. I'm like, no, you can have a banana instead. But I'm not gonna be like, boom, scorpion instead. Ha ha, you know? <laughs> like, it's a ridiculous example that Jesus gives here. Like, how many of you, if your son asks for bread, he says, you're gonna be like, I'll get you some bread. Bam, stone, you know, like, <laughs> bite into that sucker. Now you got a huge dental bill to deal with, you know? Nobody's gonna do that. It's a ridiculous example. And so that drives home his point where it says, if you then, though you are evil, like though you have sin in your heart, though you don't know how to perfectly love your kids and none of us who are parents, like we love our kids like crazy, but oh man, if you shine a light on the dark areas of our parenting, it would show we fail at perfectly loving our kids often. It says, if you then though you're evil can give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven who, who love, perfect love originates in him, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, I don't know if you picked up on this difference between the two stories, but Matthew 7, verse 11, he says, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? But in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 11, 
it, it actually says it a little bit differently. Verse 13, he says, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now this is key because this is the same sermon. It's recorded a little bit differently, but Jesus in both places, he's trying to say the same thing. And you gotta see this. This is huge. This passage, ask, seek, knock. It's not really about us getting things from God. I wanna say this again, because you can't miss this. This is like critical. This is the sermon. This passage is not about us getting things from God. This passage is actually about us getting God. So I wanted to, I'm gonna show you two quick truths that come from Matthew 7, verses nine through 11. The first truth is this. God loves us way more than any earthly father ever could. God loves us way more than any earthly father ever could. And I wanna just say something to this point. Like I know as I give the father illustration for some, if not many of you in this room, that's a hard one to like process and be excited about because your relationship with your father is really broken. Like I know in this room, there's a lot of broken relationships with dad. Some of you don't even know your dad. Some of you, your dad abused you or present tense is abusing you. Some of you, your dad maybe was physically present, but emotionally in every other way, totally absent. And you need to understand whether you have a good dad or a bad dad, God is the dad that none of us have ever had. God loves us way more than any earthly father ever could. That's the first truth I want you to see. The second truth I want, to see, want you to see from verses nine to 11 is this. Whereas your earthly father can meet earthly needs, like in this case, providing bread, your heavenly father can meet the greater heavenly need. And I don't know if this was intentional or not that Matthew uses bread here. If your son asks for a piece of bread, are you gonna give him a stone instead? But I can't help but see that whereas our earthly fathers can give us bread, our heavenly father can give us the greater bread. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is, this is why nobody who comes to the father will be rejected. Yes, Matthew 5, 20 says what it says. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter into heaven. But right before that, Jesus says this in verse 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He said, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Listen, Jesus meets the righteous requirements laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's the only one who does. This is why Jesus matters to you and to me. Through Jesus or because of Jesus, we can come to God. John 14, six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the father except through me. So when we get to Matthew seven, verse seven and eight, he says, ask, seek, knock. This is what he's talking about. That's a picture of what desperate people do. In fact, go back to Matthew chapter five, verse three. Verse three, it says, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who realize how destitute on the inside they are. That's desperate. 
Verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who realize how desperate they are. Verse five, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who aren't standing there in pride. Look at what I've done. But who are standing there in meekness and humility, knowing that there's no way they could ever do enough. That's the description of a desperate person. Only the desperate enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who see how far short they fall of what God requires enter the kingdom of heaven, which leads to the question, do you realize how far short you fall? And once you do, know this promise in Matthew chapter seven, verse seven, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So Chance, he comes to faith that night in his room. God uses this passage to be the one that tips, you know, tips it. He comes, comes to faith. Well, later that summer, so that was March, later that summer, I get a call in June, late one night. Again, Chance is just weeping. Like, dude, what happened? And he's like, man, I just wanted you to know my girlfriend, Heather, who he'd been dating this whole time prior to him coming to me, asking him to help him stop smoking pot. He's like, my girlfriend, Heather, came to spend some time with my family. And it's like, dude, I just got to lead her to Christ tonight. So that summer he leads his girlfriend to Christ. So they graduate, they actually get married. And this would have been 2006, I'm old. So today they're still married and they have three kids. And just recently, his two oldest, they just recently had their third kid. His two oldest, Chance has had the opportunity to lead both of his boys to Christ and just recently baptized both of his boys. It's an incredible story what God is doing. He's now working in a public school in Little Rock, Arkansas, where he is uh, part of the administration and he's able to use his platform now to be a light in a dark place for Christ. People's lives are being changed through chance. And here's what I want you to hear. This could be your story too. When we come to the place of realizing how far short we fall of God's perfect standard of righteousness, which he requires of all of us, that's the moment that we're ready to respond to the gospel. God sent Jesus to rescue us from our dark, depraved, desperate place. This could be your story too. And maybe this already is your story. I would imagine for some of you, if not many of you, it is already your story. And if it is already your story, hear this. This could be your roommate's story. This could be your coworker's story. This could be your kid's story. This could be your neighbor's story. This could be your classmate's story. This could be your frat brother's story or your sorority sister's story. If we would just realize this, he who asks, will get an answer, he'll receive. One who seeks will find. And the one who knocks to them, the door will be opened. This is the gospel and it's great. Let me pray for us.